gave a prayer report of petition. Paul and Timothy prayed often for them. And they asked that the Colossians, and they asked of God that he would fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will, what he desired and what he required of them. They prayed for that so that these new believers might live a life that was worthy of Christ and fully pleasing to him. And they closed off their prayer report with a fourfold sketch of how that life might look. It's a life of bearing fruit in all kinds of good works. It is a life that's ever increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a life that gets its strength for joyful endurance from the power of God. And it is a life of giving thanks to God for the inheritance for which the Father fitted them. In verses 15 through 20, Paul is now launching into the main message of his letter. Let me make a few overarching observations about the section and then show you how Paul structured it. Observation one. I said that Paul was now moving into the main message of his letter. And that's not to suggest that the greeting and the prayer reports were perfunctory or a mere formality. As as we've seen over the past nine weeks, they are a fat spiritual feast for these new believers. And they were meant to counter various aspects of the false teaching to which this new church was being exposed. Observation two, Paul transitions to his main message not with a negative warning against the heresy they were facing, but he does so with a positive affirmation of who Christ is. And Paul didn't always start his letters this way, to the church at Galatia. He greets them, and then he gets straight to business. I'm astonished, he wrote, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not so with the church at Colossae. Here he begins with a powerful and poetic declaration of the nature of Christ. It's possible that Paul took this approach because of his confidence that Epaphras had taught the Colossians well. They heard and understood the grace of God in truth, as we saw in verse 6. Maybe the false teaching was a threat on the horizon, but it had not yet infiltrated the church. It's also possible that Paul structured it like this as a method of teaching, exposing them to the genuine so they'd be equipped to spot the counterfeit more readily. Or maybe it's just because he had never visited them face to face and he was just being gentle with his approach. Regardless, it's worth noting that the first section of the body of Paul's letter is a positive affirmation of the nature of Christ and not a direct condemnation of the heresy. Observation three. Paul in this section is using non-technical language. And he's using it to describe the glorious reality of Christ. We have much to learn from the way he does this. Christ is the preeminent one. He is God. He is creator and he is reconciler. And Paul says all of this in language that the Colossians would understand. Paul is presenting the Son of God as the Lord of creation 
and the Lord of the new creation, and he's not using philosophical or theological jargon. I read somewhere that this passage has been commented on by more scholars than any other text in the New Testament. I don't know if that's true. I don't even know how they would count something like that. What I do know is that Paul here lays out a majestic view of Christ in only six verses. It is short, it is simple, it is poetic, and it's memorable, and children can get it, and theologians can drown in it. It is remarkable. Observation number four. Well, if Paul isn't presenting an academic paper for peer review... Then what's he doing here? Well, he's addressing down-to-earth practical problems in a real church of real believers. How can I experience fullness, a greater level of spirituality and sanctification? That's what was going on in Colossae. How can I experience freedom and deliverance from my ongoing sin? Is there special knowledge or insight that I can have into these powers of darkness because they terrify me and they hold me captive. Will practices like fasting, if I afflict my body, will it help me stop indulging my flesh? Is it okay to worship other beings like angels? And how does keeping religious festivals and Sabbath days help me spiritually? And so on. Very practical issues that Paul is addressing. And he chooses to do so by lifting up Christ to these people. So as lofty as these six verses may seem, Paul is simply addressing practical concerns in a real church. In verse 14, Paul drew our attention to the Son of God's love. That's how it is in the original the son of his love. He said that the believers have been negatively transferred from the domain of darkness and positively, sorry, delivered from the domain of darkness and positively transferred to the kingdom of the son of his love. This morning's passage immediately follows those words and tells us about this son of his love. Notice how Paul repeatedly uses the words, he is, Christ is. He does it in verse 15 and 17 and twice in verse 18. And as I said, this passage is poetic. Many commentators believe it may have been a hymn. That's impossible to prove, but the structure of it is worth noting. The passage can be divided into two main sections. In verses 15 through 17, Paul presents the Son of God's love as the preeminent one who is God and Lord of creation. And in verses 18 through 20, Paul presents the Son of God's love as the preeminent one, God and the Lord over the new creation. It is a beautiful passage. This week, we're going to focus on the Son as Lord of creation, and next week, we get to see him as Lord of the new creation. In the first half of this hymn, if you will, Paul declares four things about the Son. They are four proclamations or descriptions of Christ. Two are in verse 15 and two are in verse 17. 
Paul declares that the Son of God's love is one, the image of the invisible God. Josh preached on that last week. Two, he is the firstborn of creation. Three, he is before all things. And four, in him all things hold together. Sandwiched evenly between those four grand declarations, Paul gives the ground or the foundation or the underlying reasoning that justify those descriptions. Declaration one. The first thing Paul declared about Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. Josh focused an entire sermon on this last week, and we did that because this one phrase puts forth the deity of Christ in unmistakable terms. The Scottish biblical scholar F.F. Bruce put it like this. To say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him, the invisible has been made visible. The apostle John put it even more clearly. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has made him known. Or as the author of Hebrews wrote, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So who is the son of God's love? He is the perfect and exact image of, the, of his father. He is the radiance of his father's glory. He is the only God. He is the one who made the invisible God visible. I touch on that to refresh your memory from last week and to usher you into the other magnificent declarations of who Christ is. Declaration two. We're still in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Paul is not using the word firstborn here to refer to the physical generation or the creation of another being. That's not how it's used. Nor does he use it that way in verse 19 where he says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That's how we normally think of the word, don't we? When I think of my firstborn, I think of our daughter. She was the first in a series of children. Well, that definition or that idea of firstborn is one of the reasons this verse was used as a proof text by the followers of Arius to support their heresy. The problem is that all six verses militate against that definition. The son of God's love is God. And as we'll see in the next verse, he is the creator of all things, no exceptions. The logic is simple. If he created all things, he himself could not have been created. What Paul is doing here is drawing from Psalm 89. It's a messianic song that spoke of King David and pointed forward to King Jesus. The context is important, so I want you to see it for yourself. Let's look at verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So this is about King David, and it's foreshadowing the Messiah. And so my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. 
The wicked shall not humble him. He's recounting the covenant. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set my hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And here's the key. Verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So what does the prophet Ethan the Ezraite, that's who wrote this psalm, what does Ethan the prophet mean by firstborn in this reference to King David and ultimately to, in reference to Christ? Was David the firstborn child of a series of children? I think everyone in here knows the answer to that is no. He was probably the youngest. He was the eighth son of his father, Jesse. In what sense, then, did God make him the firstborn? Well, the psalm tells us, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn, then, means the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. Specifically, the son of a king who has to inherit ruling sovereignty and supremacy over his father's kingdom. It says nothing about the order of birth, and it says nothing about physical generation. We'll see this concept again next week as we move into verse 18, and Paul uses the same phrase, firstborn. Listen to Dr. David Gunderson's comment on this passage. All I know about this guy is that he's the pastor at Bridgepoint Bible Church in Houston, Texas. And as you know, I always feel safer quoting old dead guys. Uh, but, but this is good stuff. Listen to Dr. Gunderson. The psalmist now, that's referring to Ethan in Psalm 89, poetically recounts the promises that God made to David. God chose David. God gave him power, stirred his heart, etc., in all this, God treated David as a favored son, the first in the covenant line, making his dynasty secure. David's victories, his fame, his dominion, and sonship foreshadow Christ's greater victory over sin, his greater fame as the risen Lord of all, his greater dominion over all things, and his greater status as the divine son of God. God promised David that his line would rule forever, and God will keep his promise through the unending reign of Christ. That's precisely how Paul is using the word firstborn in this verse, and it was not a mistake. It was the perfect word in Greek to convey the meaning of this second declaration. While the emphasis is clearly on Christ being first, having primacy, that he has the right to rule sovereignly and supremely over creation, he is still the son of God's love. He is eternally begotten of the Father, and therefore Paul called him the firstborn. It's brilliant. John Calvin gets the last word on this. He is not called firstborn simply on the ground of his having preceded all creatures in point of time. 
but because he was begotten by the Father, that they might be created by him, and that he might be, as it were, the substance and the foundation of all things. It was then a foolish part the Arians acted, who argued from this that he was consequently a creature. So declaration one, the son of God's love is the image of the invisible God. And declaration two, the son of God's love is the firstborn over all of creation. And that second declaration ushers us directly into the foundation for these proclamations in verse 16. For by him, all things were created. When Paul declared that the Son had the right and privilege of ruling sovereignly and supremely over creation, he added the word all, as if it wasn't already clear. He said, all creation. That is, by or through the agency or mediation of the Son, all things were created. We need to let that sink into our heads. Let the Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses pay attention. The Son of God's love created every single thing that is. No exceptions. The simple logic demands that if Christ created literally everything, then he himself was not created because self-creation is nonsense. But Paul didn't stop by simply saying that Christ created all things. He goes further. For by him all things were created, and then he adds, in heaven and on earth. You see, he's making his point. He's making it loud and clear. From the bioluminescent snailfish 27,000 feet below sea level, to the microalgae at the tip of Mount Everest, to the tadpole galaxy 420 million light years from Earth, and to the myriads of galaxies beyond that that our sensors and satellites will never see, Christ created everything. What a staggering view of Christ, our God. But Paul doesn't stop there either. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. As we enter the realm of the invisible, Paul then expounds his words. He says, whether dominions or, or thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These appear to be four categories of spirit beings. They might represent a hierarchy of angels, probably evil ones. And scholars suggest that there are five such classes of these in the New Testament. Thrones, principalities, authorities, powers or rulers, and dominions. We know little about them, but that's not important. Here's what is, what's important. Not their order, not their titles, not even the amount of power that these evil beings wield. None of that matters. What Paul wants to make clear to his readers is that Christ created all of them. He is their maker. He rules over them. No exceptions. Let's finish verse 16. As if it wasn't clear enough that Christ created all things, things in heaven and on earth, things that are visible and invisible, all hierarchies of evil angels, Paul wants to repeat it. 
all things were created through him. And then he takes it further. Not only were all things created by him, but they were also created for him. Jesus Christ is the end and the goal of all of creation. And therefore, he is the end and the goal of all of history. That probably should have been a fifth declaration, but I didn't think about it until this morning. All things were created for the Son of God's love. Let's make sure we understand the connection between verse 16 and the first of Paul's two declarations. The infinite creating power of Christ, and that's not an exaggeration from what we just saw, the infinite power of Christ is why Paul is justified in declaring that Christ is the image of the invisible God and for declaring that he is the firstborn, the rightfully sovereign and supreme ruler over all of creation. That is Christ, the mighty God who we follow and serve as Christians. Well, if you're wondering how the ancient Arians and the modern-day Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, try to wiggle out of the plain meaning and the logic of that text. Let me show you. This will be the only heresy that I put up on screen for you to see. You see, to maintain their heresy that Christ was a created being, they insert the word other into every instance in this passage of all things that Christ created. They're forced to say that all other things were created by him. This is a scan of my 1961 edition of the New World Translation. That is the official translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You can see that the only way they can maintain the ancient Arian heresy is by adding to the Scriptures and stripping it of its plain meaning, which just leads their them deeper and deeper into contradictions, especially when they try to claim that we should still worship Jesus. They have us worshiping a created being, an idol. Let's move now into verse 17. Paul makes two more declarations about the Son of God's love. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Declaration three, he is before all things. Again, Paul drives his message home to his readers. Listen to F.F. Bruce again as he describes the meaning of this phrase, he is before all things. No matter how far back our imagination may press, we can never reach a point of which we may say with Arius, there was once when he was not, for he is before all things. A phrase which not only declares his temporal priority, that is related to time, to the universe, but also suggests his his superiority over it, as the title firstborn has already implied. We find the same truth taught throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote those well-known words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and in the beginning He was in the beginning with God. In Revelation, John calls Christ the first and the last, and he calls him the Alpha and the Omega, and he is known as the beginning and the end. 
and to those Jews who, Christ, who called Christ a Samaritan and said that he had a demon, Jesus himself spoke these mind-bending words. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Make the connection again with verse 16. Christ's infinite power over creation is the foundation that Paul uses to justify this declaration that Christ is before all things. He is before all things in time, if such a concept can even be used when speaking of eternity. And he is before all things in superiority. That is, he is the rightfully sovereign and supreme ruler of everything. Declaration number four. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This may be the pinnacle of Paul's portrayal of the power of Christ in the first half of this hymn. Not only did Christ bring all things into existence, but he holds all of it together. That is, everything that is owns its coherence to Christ's power. He sustains all of creation, every orbit of every planet, and every electron of every atom stays put because of his power. The author of Hebrews gives this full force. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We saw that earlier. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Christ were to cease the exercise of his sustaining power, the universe would not merely descend into chaos. It would cease to exist. That is awesome in the most proper use of the word. That is the awesome power of Christ our God. Let me summarize these verses. The infinite power of Christ over creation is the foundation for why Paul can declare that Christ is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn over all of creation, and that he is before all things in both time and in superiority, and that in Christ all things hold together. That is but three of these six verses. Common language that the Colossians would understand and a stunning view of our Lord, the Lord of creation. As I try to land this thing, let me ask one question about the power of Christ. It might sound irreverent, I don't mean it to be, but if verse 16 is true, so what? What are the implications of the power of Christ for my life? Let me offer Five, And I'll tell you that I, I cut about six pages out of this sermon just so I don't keep you here all day. Uh, but there were so many areas that we could go with application. So you'll have to flesh this out in your community groups this week. Implication number one. If verse 16 is true, then the power of Christ is sufficient to destroy all evil. That's one of the reasons the Son of God appeared 
1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared, that's word for word, was to destroy the works of the devil. The display of this power is seen vividly at the cross. By his death, Christ destroyed the devil who had the power of death, Hebrews 2. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And as we'll see in the next chapter of Colossians, it was at the cross that he stripped evil of its power and took victory over them, Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, remember those spirit beings from this morning's text, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ His power over evil is a sweet comfort in today's world. Think of that as you watch the news. Number two, if verse 16 is true, then the power of Christ is sufficient to give you life. As the creator of all things, that's exactly what he has the power to do. Listen to the words of our Lord. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Jews he was talking with had no problem admitting that God had the power to raise the dead, but Jesus laid claim to the same power and the Jews hated him for it. In the same conversation, Jesus extends his life-giving power to include eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That language of passing from death to life reminds me of what we saw just a few verses earlier in our text of the Colossians being delivered from the domain of darkness and being transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. Number three, if verse 16 is true, then the power of Christ is sufficient to keep you secure. If he has the power to create all things, then nothing he created, not in heaven or in earth, visible or invisible, demonic or otherwise, has the power to snatch you out of his hand or to separate you from his love. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For I am sure, Paul wrote to the Romans, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, that language familiar, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how could it? Christ, the firstborn over creation, the one who has the right and privilege to rule sovereignly and supremely over it, he made it. It is his by creation and it is his by right as the son of God. 
And he made all of it for his glory, and none of it can separate you from his love. Dick Lucas, the minister I quoted earlier, made a similar application from verse 17. If Christ is the power which sustains the whole universe from remote beginnings to its final goal, is it reasonable to doubt that his power can sustain the individual from conversion to glory? Put in this way, it would, of course, be absurd, even monstrous, to deny the adequacy of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you can rest confident that His power is such that you are secure in Him. He has the power to destroy evil. He has the power to give life, and He has the power to keep you secure. Number four. If verse 16 is true, then the power of Christ is sufficient to transform your diseased, cancer-riddled body into a new, glorified body like His. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul wrote to the Philippians, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. And how will He do it? By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The power to which He has the right as the firstborn of creation is the power that will one day soon glorify your sick body. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, you have hope. And lastly, if verse 16 is true, then the power of Christ is sufficient for all your weaknesses. Remember this passage? Paul prayed that Christ would remove his thorn of flesh. But here's the response Paul got. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, said Paul, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the implication Paul makes from my implication. If the mind-staggering power of Christ is made perfect in my weakness, and I'm glad to be weak, praise the Lord. Let me pro proclaim my frailty from the rooftop because Christ's Power is made perfect in my weakness. I get strengthened by His grace, and God gets the glory. So if you are in Christ this morning, and you feel weak, praise the Lord. And may the power of Christ rest upon you. Let me say one final thing about these implications. All of them are blessings for those who are in Christ. There are two groups of people in this room, those who are in Christ and those who are not. To use the language from verse 13, there are those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And there are those who remain under the control of spiritual darkness. 
Or to put it in the language of verse 14, there are those who have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and there are those who remain enslaved to sin and have not been forgiven. The difference between the two groups in this room is the response of your heart to the gospel. The glorious good news about the magnificent and powerful Christ who we tried to describe this morning. That he died to save hell-deserving sinners like you and me. His death on the cross was a sacrifice designed to save those who would put their faith in him. And only those who do so will be saved. By putting your faith in Christ and his finished work, here's what I mean. I mean believing in him. Trusting in him alone to rescue you from your enslavement to sin and not trusting in what you think you can do. That is putting your faith in Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, the magnitude of the power of Christ might frighten you. He wields all power. There's good reason that it would frighten you Because Christ will return in power and glory. And he will trample his enemies. That's true. But it is not too late to embrace him. If you are in Christ this morning, then here's my exhortation to you. Gather with your brothers and sisters around the throne and join the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels and numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That slain lamb is our God. Let me pray for you. Father, your servant Paul has given us an incredible view of the power of your Son. And Father, the the implications of that run from my existence to my life in eternity, your glory, my joy. Father, your your Son is magnificent and we want to worship Him aright. He is worthy of that. So, Father, we thank you for these words from Paul. And, Father, I ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters that you would continue to fill them with the knowledge of your will. We want our lives to be in step with what we know is true about your Son. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work, that work in our hearts. And, Father, may you receive all the glory for it. I pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.